Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Hi, everyone. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us this afternoon. Um, my name is Allison Ahern Fillow. I'm an attorney at Davis Mom here in Boston. Um, I practice employment based immigration law. With me this morning is Anthony Arena, who's with Fragaman. And today we are going to go over the basics of employment based immigration, like a high level overview the various types of work visas and various options to immigrate to the United States based on employment here. And um, as um, Trenton had mentioned, there is, um, we'll leave plenty of time for question and answer at the end. If you have questions, please feel free to submit them in the Q&A box and we'll address them at the end of our presentation. All right, so let's get started. So um, when submitting applications for work-based visas or uh, immigrant applications based on employment, there are several government agencies involved in the process. First and foremost is the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, referred to as USCIS or USCIS. Uh, USCIS adjudicates the majority of uh, applications for work visas uh, and applications for uh, the immigrant uh, classifications that provide eligibility for, for U.S. permanent residents or uh, a green card. Most of these applications are submitted by the U.S. employers here in the United States. They are shipped to USCIS and USCIS processes them. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security also oversees Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the agency that uh, charges uh, individuals with removal from the United States, and Customs and Border Protection, which facilitates admission to the United States at our borders. The Department of Labor is also a major agency involved, specifically uh, in providing that, that authorization to work in the United States temporarily or permanently. Um, and there are several sub-agencies of the Department of Labor that have a hand in processing these applications. And then the Department of State is the agency that oversees the U.S. embassies and consulates throughout the world. And those um, offices are involved when the foreign national who is being, um, who has the offer of employment in the United States is located abroad and the application is is going through the U.S. Embassy and Consulate because they're located abroad. They're not here in the United States. So those are the those are the agencies that that we're dealing with on a day to day basis. The uh, legal and uh, regulatory sources. Uh, so the statute is the Immigration Nationality Act. Uh, applicable provisions are listed below. Uh, and then each agency has its own set of regulations. So again, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Labor, the Department of State, each has its own regulatory framework um, that you should familiarize yourself with. And again, 
applicable sections of those regulations are listed below too. The U.S. Department of State has the Foreign Affairs Manual, which is the guidance for uh, processing applications that go through the U.S. embassies and consulates abroad. And USCIS has its own policy manual, which is available on their website. And this is actually an excellent resource uh, for how USCIS processes the applications for the temporary work visas and the classifications for immigrating here based on employment. Uh, it provides good insight into what USCIS is looking for in terms of supporting documentation and really what evidence they find to be most persuasive, strong. So I, I highly recommend looking at this when preparing these applications. Um, and then there's also more specific memoranda, operating procedures. I would say with, with the, the rules and, and the policies, they're not always consistent. They can change frequently. Um, so it's best to check uh, for the most up-to-date version of the um, applicable memoranda because it, it, it can change. And now I'm going to hand it over to Anthony, who will be going over the uh, non-immigrants, uh, the temporary workers here in the U.S. Uh, thanks, away, Allison. Anthony. Thanks. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate it. And I, and again, I, I, I don't want. I want to iterate that again. Is that the U.S. Um, policy manual is super helpful uh, for you know getting through a lot of this. Um, these applications and and the support documentations. I know that I use that all um, in in some of the more uh, detailed oriented uh, categories that we're going to be covering today. So um, non-immigrants. So this is a, just a kind of a you know when I first got into the practice, it was non-immigrants and immigrants, and I didn't you know what's the difference? How does that work? Um, so the non-immigrant is usually people who are here for uh, on a temporary basis with the idea that they, you know once their visa is over they're going to go home now there's some exceptions to that um and they're two lifted right there which is called the h1b and the l1 and this has a dual intent which means that they can adjust um when uh, and Allison will talk a little bit more about this when they talk about the immigrant side of things, but you can um, uh, become a permanent resident uh, through those two categories. Um, and again, we have lots of classifications. We call it the alphabet soup of non-immigrant uh, non classification. So if you can get the next slide. We can start. So these are the ones that they we're going to hit on today. And again, these are going to be um, you know, high level view of what these categories are. Um, they are, you know, a lot of it is much more technical as you get into the to the weeds with it. But um, these are the uh, the visa categories that we're going to uh, at least address today. Uh, so the B, the first one, the B one, I, we're doing this alphabetical. I believe this is this is the way that I put the, the slides were put in. So I think this is an alphabetical. So not one is better than the other. It's just the way that we're presenting today. It's just you know um, an alphabetical order. So the B one business visa. Um, so a foreign national, someone who's on you know somebody outside of the United States, uh, can come in and perform. Uh, 
business activities. However, that's business activities are limited. They're not allowed to do uh, productive work, but they can do business meetings, conferences, um, projects. Uh, there's some stipulations there where they, the the um, the particular person coming in has to do the work for the benefit of the foreign and uh, the foreign uh, employer, uh, and that foreign national must remain on that that foreign employer's uh, payroll. Uh, again, there's limitations as to uh, the duration of their activities. Again, uh, this usually requires a letter of invitation to come in, um, but there's also limitations in the type of the duration. So three to six months is typical, um, but we we know that uh, the officers at the border have discretion to um, shorter, shorten the stays. So um, no use of position is needed, um, and then the foreign national applies at the consulate outside the U.S. And move on. Um, again, I'm not going to read all of the countries, but the business waiver program is allowed for the the uh, foreign nationals of these countries. I believe uh, there's also I believe Israel has just joined this list as well. Um, but this is for uh, business and tourism up to 90 days. Uh, the, the more important part of this category is, is the, the folks who are not allowed to use it really. Um, and those are the, uh, those are the exceptions listed. Um, they're, uh, you know, Iran, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, uh, Somalia, Sudan. Those are the countries that are um, also prohibited from using this particular specialized um, program uh, that the uh, State Department allows for. Um, there is a website listed right there uh, as well uh, as to how you go about applying for the visa waiver program. And if we can change the slide. And there's also a passport requirement, which is listed there too. The big part of that is um, you have to be the e-passport travel document and uh, the uh, passport itself needs to be at least six months uh, of, of uh, validity to it from your departure to the United States. So um, again, uh, so the other part about this is no extension of stay or change of status, but it's a little technical, which means that you can't be here and then extend from here, from, from the US. It's, it's, a, it's a situation where you have to reapply, so. Um, so maybe uh, some of you in the audience are, are on this particular visa. This is the F1 student visa. Um, and these are for people who are studying and, and maybe you're studying here in our wintry Boston today. Uh, so this, uh, this is for elementary through postdoctoral education. You have to be full-time at a at approved school. Um, when you come in, you're, you get um, the, um, the CBP puts out a um, an I-94 and they'll and they'll have an annotation on it which says DS and that just means duration of stay. So someone who's in F1 status will have that duration of stay on their I-94. Um, a lot of this is handled um, through your school or the, the designated school official. Uh, it's overseen by ICE, uh, which we talked about in the beginning. 
Um, and it's managed through this um, the Student Exchange Visitor Information System, or commonly known as CVIS. Um, and the, the big part about this is that you have to get your I-20. And I think anybody who's in this F1 knows very well what their I-20 is and what it looks like. And, and these are the documents that you need to kind of carry with you when you start traveling um, and, and so forth. So uh, if we can switch the slides. Um, F1 students uh, have employment options, which is great. Um, the uh, optional practical training or OPT uh, is uh, allowable for 12 months uh, per the degree program. They may work part-time during the school year, full-time during vacation and after graduation. Um, they need the card, so they need an actual physical card uh, to work. And the I-120 that we talked about in the last slide has to be endorsed for the OPT. Um, the EAD itself is not specific to an employer. However, you still need to work with your DSO with regards to your employment. All right. Um, there's a potential extension for certain uh, programs for an additional 24 months. Um, and that's called your STEM OPT. Um, there's been some um, expansion to the STEM fields and Again, that's all reviewable on the USIS website as well. Um, there's also the uh, CPT curricular practical training uh, if it's part of the educational program uh, for the school as well. All right. Uh, J1 exchange visitors. Um, and there's a lot, so trainees, interns, uh, teachers, professors, research scholars, like a lot of these folks are, that fall into this category. Um, again, uh, you have the abilities to um, um, be in the U.S. Uh, this has the STEM uh, undergraduate, this is the, which is highlighted in red. They can stay up to 36 months, uh, which was previously 18 months, which is a highlight of the, the J uh, Exchange Visitor Program. Um, um, there is change of status uh, into other categories, which is unlike the um, Visa Waiver Program. So, um, but there's, there's the, uh, Caveat with some of these J programs, which means that you'll have to go back to your foreign residence um, for two years after the completion of your program. Uh, now, again, this is not for every J1 visitor, um, but there is a, a requirement that if it appears on the State Department skills list because skills are needed in their home country, or if the foreign national has received um, uh, U.S. or home government funding, uh, they would have to leave with it unless they get a waiver for that two-year requirement. Okay. So um, in the L1, so a lot of my practice is the L1 and the H1B and the O1. And these are the categories that we see more commonly in the business practice of the non-immigrant category visas. Um, so what is, so what is L1? L1 means that you trans, you have an employee um, overseas 
and you want to bring that employee to a U.S.-based uh, related company here in the U.S. Um, the kind of uh, L1s are the executive and managers and specialized knowledge folks. Um, there is a requirement that there's a relationship between the the U.S. entity that's sponsoring and the overseas company. So this one, this category is more about the companies and the people that work for those particular companies. Um, uh, it's listed there as the, the corporate affiliations, either parent, subsidiary, affiliate, uh, branch, or joint venture. So um, there has to be that qualifying relationship. Um, there is also a requirement of one year overseas employment with a qualifying company in three years preceding the transfer. It's a lot to say, but you have to have that one year of uh, overseas employment for the qualification within the last three years. Um, the L1 and the L, uh, L1A has a seven year maximum stay and the L1B has the five year maximum stay. Um, and in red here, this is this has been uh, a great um, a great thing for people in L1 who have uh, dependent spouses. That all they have to do is have that L2S um, annotated on their I-94 uh, for work authorization. And before this, they had to apply through an application, uh, but that's no longer needed. Okay. Um, H-1B special specialty professionals. Um, so they, they call this the specialty occupation category. Um, there's a minimum entry level requirement for the job, which is a bachelor's degree or their equivalent. Um, USIS allows for three years of work experience to be the equal to one year of college course credit. Um, so if you have an individual who has 12 years of experience but doesn't have a college degree, you could still bring that person in um, with a um, qualified uh, evaluation company indicating that this person has um, a bachelor's degree um, based on the experience. So um, that's that is a, it's an important part and it's an important part of you know having these uh, foreign nationals come into the U.S. that they have to have that bachelor's degree. Um, the employer must get a labor condition application. This is an LCA, um, and this is produced by the Department of Labor, um, one of the other entities that we talked about in the beginning. Um, and there, this particular category is limited. Uh, to a six-year maximum stay, uh, and under certain circumstances that, that can be extended beyond the six years, um, and I believe Allison will talk a little bit about that later in our presentation as to what uh, will allow someone in the H-1B category to extend beyond the six-year um, maximum stay. Um, to get the H-1B, um, and, and we're talking in the for-profit sense, uh, the, there is a 65,000 annual cap on H-1B. So there's a lottery every year. And uh, we've had some uh, interesting results in the last couple of years. I know Allison and I talked about one of these in our previous uh, presentation to the, um, the BBA. Um, there are 6,800 uh, 
uh, H-1B set aside for professionals from Chile and Singapore. There's uh, an additional 20,000 slots allocated for holders of U.S. advanced degrees. So it is a U.S.-based degree, not the foreign equivalent. So that's sometimes tricky for some people to, to wrap their heads around, but it's, so you have a master's degree from, you know, again, someplace in the United States, that's a qualifying um, university or um, university. So um, cap filing, um, okay, so this is a little, yeah, so, Cap season begins filing every year, but now there's a registration period, so your employer will register you for that, um, and then we could then we start filing um, for your um, your H one B visa. There are eligibility uh, as opposed to the L1 category where all you need is an annotation. You actually do need to file an application for your dependent spouse in certain circumstances, uh, which has eligibility for them to have work authorization in the United States. Um, and there are also some requirements for the employer um, uh, for if, uh, if unfortunately, uh, an individual is uh, terminated, uh, they have to offer reasonable costs and return transportation for those folks that have been terminated from their employment. Okay. Um, so a little bit more about the labor condition application and what the Department of Labor looks for. Um, the employer needs to attest to these uh, uh, requirements that the wage is high, must be higher of the prevailing or actual wage paid to other similarly situated employees. So usually U.S. workers. And there's a, there's a guidelines on how to go about getting that particular wage to see, make sure that that is the prevailing wage for that particular area that you're looking at. Uh, working conditions. Um, it's not going to, uh, the H-1B worker will not affect wages or working conditions of other uh, employees. Um, there's no strike or lockout, which is self-explanatory. There's no stoppage of work at the um, in occupation at the workplace. And notice, and notice has been given that um, to other employees that an LCA was filed. Um, and there are additional obligations for, for employers who have a higher proportion of H-1B uh, workers who are dependent uh, or those who have willfully violated the H-1B program rules. Um, an employer must uh, post the LCA and keep the LCA uh, documents in a public access file that the members of the public can review upon request. Okay. Um, some of the other categories uh, that we deal with a lot um, is uh, for Canadian and Mexican professionals, the TN uh, category. Um, and this is a category that's um, and that's done by a, by a treaty, an agreement. Um, it's now known as the USMCA. Um, the, uh, you must be uh, the foreign national, either the, the uh, foreign national from Canada or, or Mexico, uh, must be coming to work in a, uh, in a specific occupation listed. So it's somewhat different than the specialty occupation, but it is a enumerated 
category that's listed in the US MCA. Um, there's a three-year initial period of stay and also three-year increments. So they don't have that limitation like the H-1B category does, where you have the six-year maximum stay. So this can be renewed um, uh, again uh, uh, over and over. So that's so that's there's a, there's a difference there. So there's got to be some some if if you have a Canadian citizen say, do you want to do the H-1B or should we do the TN? I mean, those are the, the strategic calls that you're going to have to make with your clients um, and and what their ultimately what their 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 goals are. So um Canadians can apply at the entry, uh, the port of entry, uh, or at a service center. Um, Mexican uh, can only apply at the consulate, so that's that's also a, diff a distinction that you you know keep in mind when uh, you're you're looking um, at your particular foreign national. Um, e three Australian professionals. Uh, there's a um, certain number of visas per year and they apply at the consulate. There's no um, uses fine, but there is a labor condition application required. Uh, um, again, that's a lot like the H-1B. Um, and just to just to go up again, there's no LCA required for the Canadian or the Mexican professional. So that's also something that, you know, to keep in mind. Um, a two-year additional period of stay, renewable ind indefinitely, and spouses can apply for work authorization again. And, you know, very important um, for folks who have um, who have spouses that want to work while they're here in the United States. Uh, the H-1B one uh, for uh, Chilean and Singaporean professionals, um, the initial year uh, period of stay and renewable and one year increments as well. Um, again, LCA is required in this particular category. All right. Uh, again, each, again, we I don't see very many of these, but the, the you know the, it's important to see what you have in front of you when you're um, analyzing a particular person um, available to business owners, managers, and executives, uh, and employees who will oversee work in an enterprise engaged in trade between the U.S. and the and the country where they're coming from or originating from, and it represents uh, or represents a major investment in the U.S. Um, there's a treaty in place, um, uh, majority ownership or control of the, the investing company must be held by the nationals of that treaty company. Um, the foreign national seeking E status must also hold citizenship in that treaty country. The two subcategories are the E1 tr uh, treaty traders, FN, uh, serve in a managerial, similar to the L1, but serve in a managerial or essential skills capacity, and the treaty investors must fill a key role within the company. Um, again, there's the E. E3D spouses, um, again, with an annotated I-94 designation, uh, does not require an application or to, to obtain an EAD. So, okay. Um, so in this particular category, I like this category a lot. Um, and this is a category where you can really get a lot from looking at the U.S. CIS policy manual um, for what they... Uh, are looking for um, to get somebody of, um, to, to have somebody classified as a person of extraordinary ability. Um, and you can be creative with this category. I find that you can be creative and you use your 
your your creative juices to to you know uh, get what this what a person has done in their careers and and see if there's um, you can make an argument a cogent argument as to whether or not this person would qualify for a person uh, a person of extraordinary ability. Um, uh, three different categories: the sciences, uh, education, business, and athletics. Um, you have to rise to the top of your field. Um, and again, how you get in this acclaim, there's there's a whole a lot of different subcategories, original contributions, things like that. You've done peer reviews. There's a there's a real a real uh, sense that you can really go after um, for this particular category. Um, they have the other categories of motion picture or TV industry and the arts. Um, one of the things that is not listed here, the visual arts, is I just I just did one for a chef. So the culinary arts. So I I was able to get an O one um, uh, approved for somebody who was an ex, you know a, an excellent chef, um, and he's come into the U S. Um, you know to do his craft here, which was um, which is which was a, a great. It was a great and and it was very impactful for that particular restaurant and for that particular family. So, um, all right. Um, International uh, yeah, athletes and uh, entertainment groups. I, you know, there's. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but they said that Lionel Messi got an O one in a day. I don't. I don't know if that was actually really what happened, but you know, there's some rumor that that actually did happen. Um, and obviously, he's he would be you know considered uh, Lionel Messi. Obviously, the uh, fantastic Argentina uh, soccer player who's now playing for I believe Miami uh, football club. So. Um, but again, that is someone who would also qualify for um, the O1, but also for the P1 internationally recognized for athletes and entertainment groups. Okay. Um, all right. So how do you go about doing this? So you have to file a form and the form is the I-129 um, for most of these categories. Um, so those, you know, so you have to kind of, you know, maneuver your way around that particular form document. I think it's maybe a little bit overly complicated, but I think, um, uh, it, you know, once you get familiar with the I-129, um, you're able to produce a, you know, a, um, and at least an application uh, for um to submit your, you know, your category that you're looking to qualify uh, your your particular client for. Um, and again, pay attention to the LCA requirement uh, that, you know, on some categories it's required, some categories it's not. Um, when approved, USIS does issue a I-797 notice, which will list the, um, the person's name and the category and the duration uh, for how long that person uh, is allowed to stay in the U.S. So those are like three things that you really want to look at when you get a, a I-797 approval. Um, uh, again, there are foreign nationals also submit visa applications at U.S. consulate unless they are "quote unquote" visa exempt. All right. Let's see. So, what happens when your person comes? So, um, CBP will uh, 
you know, take a look at its documentation, his or her documentation, and will uh, place a stamp uh, in the passport uh, and put in the admitted until date. Uh, CBP also creates the form online of the I-94 arrival or departure record. Um, there's a website here where you can check uh, CBP's work. I guess, uh, oversee whether or not they did it right, because those are also important things that you have to pay attention to when you come into the United States, making sure that you were admitted in the correct category. We see it sometimes, we see um, maybe in the TN category where somebody from Canada comes in and they don't present their documentation and all of a sudden they have a B on it because can, Canadians could come in and on uh, whenever they want really and they come in on a B instead of their TN and that the B doesn't carry work authorization so you have to you know do some you know some some corrective work with the C, uh, CBP for that to 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 uh, to work out. So these things are important um, to take a look at your um, I-94 printout. Um, and uh, mission stamp in I-94, again, good proof of your status, your legal status, and your authorized stay in the United States. Um, a visa is the stamp that goes in your passport. Okay, so that's different than your your I seven nine seven. Your visa, um, you don't need to, you you can have an expired visa and still be maintaining uh, status here in the United States. The visa is the requirement for the travel for international travel for the most part. So, um, uh, they must have the uh, valid admission stamp though. You have to have you were admitted correctly into the United States. Um, there are some. Uh, consequences, obviously, you, you know, you always want to pay attention to these things. Um, overstay, you know, you don't don't really want to have an overstay at all. Um, when you're here in the United States, you want to make sure that you have a valid visa, uh, a valid category, you're, um, you have a valid uh, reason to be here. Um, they do have, again, you, you want to pay attention to this, you know, more than 180 day overstay, there's a three year bar to entry to the US. Again, and I'll say possible entry to the U.S. Again, this is not, you know, these are, you know, these are things that are out there that you want to make sure that you avoid. Uh, a one-year overstay, there's a 10-year uh, bar as well. Um, and again, USIS wants to know where you are at all times. And if you move, uh, you have to fill out this form AR-11 uh, within 10 days of your move um, to uh, a new residence location. So um, I think that's it for me. Thank you so um, much. And I think uh, Allison is going to now take that second part of that immigrant uh, folks here in the United States. So take yes. it away, Allison. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Anthony. That was such a great overview of all of, all of the different visa categories um, it seems seems like a lot. And then when you're practicing, it seems very limited. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's sort of interesting. But, you know, what, what we typically see on the business immigration side is an employee is on one of those, usually an H-1B visa or an L-1 visa or an O-1 visa, and they're working and they're strong performers. And the employer starts thinking, you know, I really want this person to stay. I really want this this employee to 
uh, continue to to be with the company indefinitely. I don't want to be tied to a uh, expiration date on his or her visa. And that's when we start talking about employment-based immigration, which is uh, really the, the U.S. employer is sponsoring that foreign national to immigrate permanently to the United States. Um, so on this slide, we have, you know, what, what they're referred to as, uh, green card holders, permanent residents, immigrants, all meaning the authorization to reside in the United States permanently. Um, there are limits to how many immigrants can, uh, be admitted to the United States each year. Um, and, and I will get into the visa bulletin on a, on a later slide, but, um, just on a high level, the U.S. Department of State uh, releases information on where where those those caps are, where those quotas are at any given time. So just to, I think it's helpful to know that there are different um, bases of of permanent residence, family based um, and, and the third bullet point there, the diversity visa lottery. There are ways to immigrate to the United States apart from being sponsored by a U.S. employer. Uh, we're obviously we're focused on the employment based today, but just so um, you're aware, there are ways that, you know, a family member can sponsor immigration. Um, certain foreign nationals can apply for a diversity visa lottery. This this lottery was put into place to have a diverse group of immigrants here in the United States. So it's usually, you know, countries that are underrepresented here can um, have a better uh, shot at getting uh, immigrant uh, visa through this lottery. Um, but again, today we're focused on that middle bullet point, the employment-based um, immigration. So uh, the visa bulletin, again, th this is how the Department of State releases information on where um, where they're at in processing immigrant visas. And really what it is, is there's backlogs in the various immigrant categories. And to see where the backlogs are, you check the visa bulletin. It's updated monthly. Uh, you can find it simply by putting in your Google search visa bulletin. It will come right up um, and it will come up for the current month. And you can see where um, the cutoff dates are, where the Department of State is allowing for um, individuals to file their applications to immigrate to the U.S., um, which is the dates for filing tables. Um, those cutoff dates refer to if if your if your date or your um, I like to refer to it as your place on the wait list, your priority date. If it is prior to the cutoff date in the box that applies to you, you can file um, your immigrant visa application. Um, and then the final action date table is the where the Department of State is at for actually being able to issue the immigrant visa, actually being able to issue the authorization to immigrate. Um, so. The two tables can be confusing. Basically, the dates for filing is when you can file. The final action is when it can be issued. 
And um, again, the, the important piece here is, is, that, is the date, the place on the wait list, the priority date. And I'll talk about how that date is determined, um, but it is a, a, an exact date and you look to see where your intending immigrants priority date is. You look at the table that applies to them, the category that applies to them on the visa bulletin, and you see if the date in that box is after that uh, immigrant intending immigrants priority date, and then you know you can you can file. Um, USCIS will follow sometimes follow the dates for filing table. Sometimes it will follow the final action dates table. You. You, to know which table it is following, you go to their website. They, You can actually, again, if you put in your Google search visa bulletin, go on the visa bulletin, there's a link to the USCIS page on which table it is following at any given month. You go to that and you can see um, which table USCIS is following, which is important if the intending immigrant is here physically in the United States, because you're going to go by what USCIS is doing if they're here in the US. Um, and then just a, a big exception is immediate relatives of US citizens don't have to, um, they, they're not subject to a backlog, so the visa bulletin doesn't apply to them. This is a um, sample visa bulletin, just so you, you can see what it looks like. So again, you have um, the, the dates in the various categories. Um, the employment-based uh, sample table is the one below. Uh, I'll get into the different employment-based categories, but you have the one employment-based one, employment-based two, employment-based three. Some countries have longer backlogs than others, as you can see. Uh, India uh, has a very lengthy backlog. Uh, but again, what you're looking for is what's highlighted there is are the cutoff dates. Um, and that is, you're, you're comparing that against the foreign nationals priority date to see when he or she is eligible to immigrate here. So the employment-based uh, permanent residence, employment-based immigration process, typically it is a three-step process. Uh, and it and most most frequently it does require the labor certification from the Department of Labor. Um, we refer to these as PERMs. Um, it is a specific application that goes through the Department of Labor first. Um, and then if certified, the employer can uh, proceed in, in filing the application with USCIS for to classify the, the employee as an immigrant. Uh, it's important to, to understand that the U.S. employer is the entity that is filing the, the first two steps in this process here. So the U.S. employer is filing the PERM application with the Department of Labor, requesting the Department of Labor to authorize the employer to permanently uh, employ the foreign national. Um, this process is in place because the Department of Labor is trying to protect jobs for U.S. workers. So if a U.S. employer wants to permanently hire a foreign national, they need specific permission from the Department of Labor to do so. 
The second step here, the um, immigrant petition to USCIS is also filed by the US employer. They take that certification they have from the Department of Labor, say to USCIS, we complied with the Department of Labor's rule, we have the certification, please allow us to permanently employ this foreign national. Um, and if USCIS agrees, um, they they approve that petition and then the person, the foreign national is eligible to immigrate to the US um, in, through that third step there, which, which I'll go into more detail. Um, so the, the different categories, employment-based immigrant categories, um, are one, one, two, and three. And the I think the most important item to know about EB1 is there are three subcategories to it. Um, we refer to them as EB1A, which is the persons of extraordinary ability. Um, though that's that first um, sub bullet point under the subcategories. Um, EB1B is the second, outstanding professors and researchers. EB1C is multinational executives managers. EB1A can be a self-petitioned process. So that means that because these individuals are so extraordinary and are, are just exceptional top of their field throughout the world, the US government allows them to petition to immigrate directly without a, a US employer sponsor, because again, because they're so incredible. Um, these are hard petitions to get approved. Again, the standard is high. It's really for people at the very top of their fields. Um, the outstanding professors and researchers, EB1B, those are employer sponsored. <clears throat> so the, the US employer is sponsoring um, it, it, the, the foreign national petitioning USCIS to allow uh, them to employ the outstanding professor or researcher again because they're very high, they're very well qualified, they're very high level. Um, important to note is that while these are employer sponsored, the outstanding professors and researchers do not have to go through that perm process, that Department of Labor certification process. U.S. employers can petition USCIS directly without the certification from the Department of Labor because um, these, these individuals, again, are so exceptional that um, the, the process of, of comparing them to the U.S. labor market really doesn't even make sense. Um, EB1C, the multinational executives managers, these are also employer-sponsored. Um, the employer is petitioning USCIS. Um, and they do not have to go through that labor certification, that PERM process through the Department of Labor either. Most frequently what we see is like Anthony mentioned that L1 visa category where it's uh, an, an employee who is at the overseas entity coming to the US to work here. Um, that if, if the US employer intends to have that person stay here permanently, we see a lot of times the L1 visa will transition into this EB1C category and the uh, foreign national will immigrate to the US based on being in the EB1C category because the, the regulations there are similar. It's 
someone who has worked for the foreign entity for at least one year in the previous three years um, before coming to the United States. They're filling a role that is executive or managerial in nature. Um, and the U.S. employer intends for them to be in the U.S. for the foreseeable future. EB2, um, second, second preference employment-based category. These um, applications are, they, they can require that PERM, that labor certification from the Department of Labor, or foreign nationals can ask for a waiver of that labor certification requirement if their prospective employment in the United States is in the U.S. national interest. Um, that waiver is referred to as a national interest waiver, and it is the other way that foreign nationals can directly apply to immigrate to the U.S. without a U.S. employer sponsor. So. EB1A and national interest waiver are the two options for foreign nationals to directly apply to immigrate here without employer sponsorship. Um, in the national interest waiver application, uh, the foreign national has to show that his or her uh, prospective uh, immigration, prospective employment, prospective work here in the US is going to serve an, a very clear US national interest, which could be healthcare or um, the US economy. It, it just has to be very clear that their, their work is gonna contribute to that national interest. Um, if the waiver is, if the, the, the um, individual's qualifications do not set them up for the waiver, then the application is employer sponsored and that PERM labor certification is required. Um, there, the, the EB2 category um, does require an advanced degree, masters or above. So masters are like a doctorate degree um, or bachelor's degree plus five years of prog progressive professional experience. So um, if the employer is sponsoring the petition and it, um, they are going through that PERM labor certification process, the job has to require at least an advanced degree or the equivalent of an advanced degree, and the foreign national being sponsored has to have an advanced degree or the equivalent of an advanced degree. The third um, employment-based category, uh, professionals, uh, skilled workers, other workers, this is I, I like to think of it as almost like a catch-all. If, if the job doesn't require an advanced degree or the foreign national doesn't have the advanced degree or an equivalent, um, or the job doesn't require a degree, it just requires certain skills, that would fall into this, this EB3 category. These require that PERM labor certification. Um, so again, the employer is going through that step first, and then if, if they have the certification, they're applying to USCIS for the person to immigrate in the EB3 category. Um, it is the most commonly used employment-based category. And oh, um, as it's you know listed there, professionals do require at least a bachelor's degree. Then the skilled workers, that does not require a degree, 
could require a minimum of two years of experience or training. Um, and then like, again, to catch all other workers. So more about the, the PERM labor certification process. Um, so like, I, like I've been saying, um, uh, this is very common. O almost all employment-based immigration processes require this certification. Uh, really what it is, is again, the U.S. employer wants to employ a foreign national and has to request permission from the Department of Labor to do so because um, the Department of Labor is protecting jobs for U.S. workers. So the Department of Labor is requiring that the U.S. employer actually test the U.S. labor market to see if there's a U.S. worker who is able, willing, qualified, and available to fill the offered position. And that means that the Department of Labor is requiring the U.S. employer to recruit for the position, open, advertise it as if it were open, and see if U.S. workers apply and screen those applications from U.S. workers. And after doing so, if they did not receive an application from a qualified U.S. worker, the U.S. employer can proceed in asking the Department of Labor this, this special permission to permanently hire the foreign national. Um, just so you know what the acronym stands for, PERM is Program Electronic Review Management. Really exciting. Um, it just, it, this is just the electronic online filing process that the Department of Labor uses to uh, adjudicate these applications. Um, it is done online, which is convenient. Um, but like these bullet points have, say, you know, the, the advertising is highly regulated where the advertisements have to be posted, how long they have to be posted for, how they how the, the records of the advertising and the communication with candidates has to be um, have to be kept. I mean, this is a very highly regulated process. <clears throat> and then once the, the Department of Labor issues that certification, the U.S. employer can proceed in um, filing the um, next slide, the I-140 immigrant worker petition to USCIS, which is that application form that goes to USCIS where the employer is asking for permission from USCIS to permanently employ the foreign national. Um, Again, most of these applications include that certification from the Department of Labor. Um, and then, you know, at the, at the third step, the final step in this process, the foreign national is eligible to immigrate here because the eligibility has been established by the employer sponsorship and um, they can now apply for the green card to be issued, the permanent residence to be issued and, and live here permanently. Um, this is again, when that priority date becomes so important, that that date that um, is, tr is tracked on the visa bulletin. The priority date is the date on which either the PERM application is filed with the Department of Labor, or if a PERM is not required, the date when the I-140 application is filed with USCIS, that is the priority date, the person's place on the green card wait list. And again, it has to be current, meaning prior to the cutoff date on the visa bulletin, 
in order for the foreign national to adjust his or her temporary visa status to U.S. permanent residents. Um, and as, as Anthony mentioned with that H-1B category, once the uh, foreign national has an I-140 approved, he or she can extend the H-1B beyond the maximum six years until that, that priority date is current on the visa bulletin, helping them maintain status until, until they can immigrate here. Um, and then the consular processing is, is really, if, if the circumstances are that the foreign national is outside of the United States and the U.S. employer is working through all of these steps here in the U.S., and uh, the um, once that priority date is current, the foreign national can apply for the immigrant visa through the U.S. embassy or consulate abroad. Um, it's really just it's it's sort of a parallel process to the adjustment of status, but it's happening outside of the U.S. versus in. And again, another reminder that that USCIS does does require. Um, a notification of any changes of address. Uh, so we we tell our clients all the time, you know, let us know if you move and because you have to let USCIS know and we need to file that AR-11 form. And that I think is all we have for you this morning. So we're happy to take questions now. Um, let me stop my screen share so I can see. I don't see that there's any questions um, okay. um, that's there. And you just we just got it underneath the hour, which is excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, again, if if there's any questions that you, if you'd rather not do it in this forum, um, but uh, have other questions, uh, if you can just go to the first screen because that first screen has oh, our contact yeah. information um you know if you if you wanted to uh, follow up on something um or you could reach out to the bba and and they would be able to um speak with us as well um yeah i'll go yeah. back to that yeah and uh yeah so um, but that's, uh, let's just get that screen up. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. That's I'm not rushing you. No, believe me, my technical skills, this is why you're doing that because I'm, I'm terrible at that stuff, but, uh, it's, uh, but, um, we go, there we are. Yes. Yeah. We so, um, that, this is who we are. Again, you can reach out to the Boston Bar Association um, with any other questions that you have. Um, and we, it was our, you know, again, uh, I want to thank Allison very much for uh, for always being such a great partner with uh, with these talks. Um, it's uh, it really is a pleasure to collaborate. And and again, this is a great this is a great field. Um, I think I think it really is. You impact with a lot of a lot of people, and you impact a, a lot of lives this way. Um, but yeah, so that's all, that's all yes, we have for agree. today. Thank you so much, Anthony. Um, agree. It's, it's an excellent field. And, um, again, this is, this is a lot of information. So 
please don't feel overwhelmed. You know, some practitioners will just specialize in one part of, of one visa of, of all of those visas. So um, it is it is a lot, but it is um, tremendous when when the process completes and you you've gotten someone their green card. So um, thank you so much for joining us.